0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to
1: allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty.
0: 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8:30am. Early double.
2: Clap your hands. <laughs> <laughs> baby, baby.
3: Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday, the 15th of March, at 7am. And you're joining the studio here today with me, Carnegie, Evie and Genevieve.
1: Morning.
0: Morning. Morning. How are you? I'm uh,
1: very well. <laughs> I, I'm just like um, a bit sort of upside down at the moment just after having the public holiday. So I'm just like, oh,
0: is today Monday or Tuesday? <laughs> yeah. It's also been like 30 degrees. Like <laughs> so muddling in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: Absolutely. I yeah. love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm living for it. It's a very balmy
0: autumn. Yeah. yeah. I any- hope it stays that way. Yeah. Did anyone do anything nice? Anything nice? Sorry, I'm skipping words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I,
1: I think, what did I do? I was just like, I spent a lot of time out on the balcony reading a book. Mm. Went to St. Kilda yesterday evening. That was fun. Yeah. Just
0: Lovely. relaxing. <laughs> you done? Um, I was working that hospitality life. So was I. That oh, uni nice. life. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Do they not regard public public holidays as not a thing. No, in the so, the especially world. not yes. Labor Day. Yeah,
3: I was what exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I was watching everyone on my Instagram, just living their best lives yeah, while yeah. I was at my desk.
0: Yes, I remember that, especially well if you're studying and working there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like one of those weekends where I'm like, I did so much, but I. Can't cannot remember anything just a blur anyway (laughs)
3: anyway we have an exciting show coming up today as always um to start us off this morning we have Fung's interview with Tilly and Chi from Incendium Radical Library about their upcoming poetry reading event at the NGV this Friday uh, and following that, I will be speaking to a barrister and PhD student, Daye Gang, who um, her research focuses on restorative justice programs and the experiences of anti-rape advocates active during the Women's Liberation Movement in Victoria in the 70s and 80s. So very excited to speak with her about um, lots of things happening in that space currently.
1: Mm. Cool. Um, I'm also going to be speaking to Claire Wright um, about the recent announcement about some public art um, dedicated to portraying um, women in Victoria as well as Australia. Um, It's a Uh, Claire's campaign is called A A Monument of One's Own, which is dedicated to trying to get more memorials to famous women who have contributed to um, Victorian and Australian history. So that'll be a really exciting interview.
0: Yeah, for sure. And just coming up last, I'm going to be playing uh, a conversation that Annie from Solidarity Breakfast had with Dr. Helen Caldicott on her views uh, on Ukraine. And I think that Dr. Caldicott really breaks down some of the geopolitical uh, factors going on in a really uh, easy to understand way. So if you're kind of being a little bit confused or overwhelmed by the information out there today on the issue, and also um, Dr. Caldecott is an anti-nuclear advocate, so uh, hinges on that perspective as well. Amazing.
3: Um, we will be right back with news headlines after this. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, To start off with this morning, we have a quite disturbing headline from Melbourne's West, um, where there's been a really bad chemical spill um, that's left dead wildlife strewn through various waterways. Um, The chemical spill happened last Monday and has come from an industrial area in Laverton North after a factory fire. Um, environmental authorities believe that about twelve to 13,000 litres of a chemical often found in detergent or soap was released into the waterways via storm- stormway drains. And the EPA has started a formal investigation into how the spill might have occurred. Um, but for now, you know, there's fish and eels that have been seen floating dead in large oh, numbers okay. right across the lake surface for days, especially in Altona. Um, and it's being monitored and investigated as we go. But, yeah, always um, devastating to see yeah. something like that happen. Yeah. And reminds you of how fragile everything is and how...
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like our local ecosystems are so fragile right? as it is to have, like, that kind of chemical spill. Exactly. But it's crazy. I haven't seen, like, that much coverage of it at no. all. Mm.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I literally had a friend who lives in Altona send it to me when it first happened and I looked it up and there was nothing really.
1: Yeah, especially something as large as that. involves like, you know, potentially such a wide range of, you know, dead animals. Um, I I was reading something about it um, in the ABC and like just like lots of native eels and, you know, um, pelicans and, um, you know, invertebrate like an aquatic life that are in that sort of waterway. I think a lot of people don't appreciate just how diverse all our waterways are, even in the suburbs. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think mentioning the suburbs as well, a lot of people do not understand. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh,
3: some other headlines this morning. Um, the head of the Northern Territories police union is calling for an independent investigation into the decision to charge Constable Zachary Rolfe with murder four days after the death of um, Walpiri man, Command J. Walker. Um, we have been covering this a little bit on our show and it is just travesty. What is going on it's, there?
1: I, I think it's quite telling that the police association is more concerned with right. the charge about murder rather than what Zachary Rolfe did. Um, there, there's been a lot of good coverage um, from the ABC about Kuman Jai Walker's um, death as well as the um, court case that has happened over the last... A uh, couple of weeks. Um, as you might already be aware, um, Zachary Rolfe was, um, dis- all charges were dismissed against him, uh, including a potential manslaughter charge. Um, the community is really upset about it. Um, they've called for an, uh, a complete removal of all, um, guns from police in the area and to have like, you know, um, the, the, the way in which, um, police were introduced into this situation from Alice Springs was considered unacceptable. Um, So, yeah, so stay tuned to 3CR. We'll be talking about it quite a bit, I think, over the next few weeks.
3: Absolutely. Um, And to round off the news headlines, Jen, did you want to give us a little bit of an update on what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, a lot, (laughs) obviously. And I think particularly there's been quite a huge influx of media, which rightfully so, surrounding the issue Um, And it can, yeah, it's pretty confusing to kind of differentiate what's actually going on, Mm. Um, particularly because a lot of I'm finding a lot of me media sites are taking different approaches to how to address uh, some of the events. But just uh, I guess a little update was there was Russian air raids on Sunday, which hit a Ukrainian military training ground, which is near the border of Poland, which is sort of a bigger deal because Poland is a NATO member. I think particularly um, with NATO looking at this issue, it's kind of definitely a threat to NATO, but, I mean, devastating for the people in that region anyway. Uh, But Ukrainian officials said that at least 35 people were killed and more than 130 wounded in the attack, while Russia's defence ministry said up to 180 foreign fighters were killed. Uh, And both of these statements could not be independently verified. And I think that really captures some of the confusion and some of the misinformation that's happening on both sides at the moment so Russia's reporting different numbers and Ukraine's reporting different numbers and nothing can be verified in terms of what's actually real and what's not real um but also separately, uh, U.S. journalist Brent Renaud was killed on Sunday as fighting escalated in Kiev's suburbs. Uh, the first foreign, uh, This is the first foreign reporter to die since Russia's invasion on February the 24th, uh, and he was an award-winning video and documentary maker and was shot dead while a U.S. photojournalist with him was wounded. Uh, and this is, was witnessed by medics, and I think obviously this is being reported primarily, primarily, in Western media, um, but I mean kind of a big big event in and of itself. Um, but in a sign, Moscow may have also underestimated the challenge it may face uh, with U.S. officials – sorry, U.S. officials told the media that Russia had asked China for military and economic aid for the war. Uh, Moscow also asked Beijing for economic assistance against the uh, sanctions imposed – um, and Beijing has declined to condemn Moscow's invasion and has repeatedly blamed NATO's eastward expansion for worsening tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Um, which, to be fair, like you know, isn't exactly not true. Uh, the NATO, and I think what the interview I'll play a bit later captures really well. You know, NATO is um, definitely has an agenda of Eastwood expansion and has uh, pretty threatening, uh, I guess, weapons in Ukraine pretty much, which is the border of Russia. And so by be- Beijing saying, you know, like this is just a reaction to that build up or whatever isn't not true, but it's also concerning that China hasn't really said anything else. And I guess is prompting a lot of people to be like, Oh, well, this is going to be China and Russia, but no one knows. knows. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I also just wanted to mention, because there's been a lot of conversations on sanctions and like uh, sanctioning Russia and sanctioning the oligarchs because, you know, a lot of people have been talking about if you sanction Russia, then like Russian people will suffer. Mm. Like you need to sanction the oligarchs and Putin because that's where the wealth is and... Yeah, it's really, I'm confused. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, just to break it down, like, you know, what even is a sanction? Like sanctions are coercive measures that can be applied to diplomatic, economic and cultural relations between states, and they're commonly non-military in nature. They're kind of like the... Uh, the passive aggressiveness of war. Yeah, (laughs) it's like
1: when you see like, um, you know, um, services that have been banned now in Russia. So like you can't use things like PayPal or Visa or things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's mostly so the sanctions that have been put on are economic sanctions and uh, how they operate. And I'm getting this information. The Conversation did a really great article uh, breaking this down. Um, But they tend to include, you know, travel bans, financial sanctions, and financial sanctions can consist of targeting asset freezes and restrictions on a wide variety of financial markets and services. Um, And I guess the big question is can they even be effective? Yeah. They can be. Yeah, they can be. But I think there's a lot of speculation in terms of, you know, who suffers under these Mm. sanctions. but. Mm. Yeah. It's a
3: lot to navigate. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's a lot. And it's, it's confusing. There's such a bombardment of information yeah. to like cut through it. I mean, even me going online and looking up... What's <laughs> yeah. ...trying to get to, like, okay, so what's going on now? Yeah. Like, pff, Yeah. Are you... don't know. Yeah.
3: In a way, I think it's so great that, you know, everybody has access to a lot of this information because previously in situations like this, lots of people actually don't get to do that research. So on the one hand... I feel like yeah. it's great. And then on the other hand, it's like you're wading through like so much information yeah, and yeah. figuring out what's misinformation. And-, yeah.
0: and it's, it's very, it's a very unique situation purely because of the, um, I guess, like social media has played a really big mm. role in this. And even with Ukrainians uh, in Ukraine and Russian troops in Ukraine posting like TikToks Um, And like using Instagram and yeah, it's definitely a big player in spreading maybe what's going on and maybe not what's going on. Like I I knew that there was a video circulating on TikTok um, that depicted, you know, Russian troops crying and the caption, which was in Ukrainian. Um, was, you know, Russian troops crying for their mothers as we, like, win. The oh, mother. yeah. Because yeah. obviously there's a lot of Ukrainian nationalism as well as Russian nationalism that's kind of butting heads in this mm. situation and it seems like social media has amplified. I can't believe yeah, we're yeah. seeing the
1: next war on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: two sides of the coin, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. It is. It's, like, dystopian in a way and then yeah. in other ways. It's, like it's such a good lens. Into yeah, yeah. What's definitely. going on? For and gives people firsthand. Yeah, abs yeah, absolutely. Voice on the ground. Definitely. Anyway, thanks for that, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for condensing all that information yeah. for our listeners. I think that's quite helpful. Um, and as you said, we'll have an interview coming up later as well to learn a bit more. Um, and we'll be right back with Fung's interview after this. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID 19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a
4: keyword. A 3CR supporter.
5: Incendium Radical Library is a community library, reading room and publishing press with a focus on radical politics and critical literature. In addition to supporting local artists with writers' residencies, IRL also often hosts events such as poetry readings and book launches. This Friday, the 18th of March, they will be taking part in the NGV Melbourne Art Book Fair with a poetry reading from Manisha Anjali, Chelsea Hart, Ainsley Templeton, Sara Umar, Ji Tran, and Stacey Stokes. Joining us today to tell us more about the library and the poetry event is Tilly and G. Tilly Glasgowdine is an artist and community librarian. She also co-founded the Incendium Radical Library and is the founder of Another World Library. G-Tran is an artist, writer, and editor based in NAM. G completed the writer's residency at IRL at the beginning of 2017 and has gone on to be published nationally and internationally. I should also say that G-Tran is my sibling. This is the first part of the interview with Tillian G. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. So Tilly, welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Could you please start by introducing yourself and telling us more about Incendium Radical Library? Hi, thanks for having
6: me. Um, I am an artist and community librarian. I um, co-founded Incendium Radical Library about six years ago um, with a collective of people. um, About, I think there was five of us at that time maybe six actually, no, yeah, five of us at that time. Um, that had actually been in a reading group before that. And I'm sort of in the process of phasing out of IRL. I've been running the um from, be- from the beginning I've run the publishing, the poetry events and the writers' residencies. Um and so I'm still kind of um well I am still kind of running the the publishing press just sort of while I'm still managing these books and these writers. And then yeah I'm kind of on my way out and this NGV poetry event is sort of my last poetry fan which is sort of a bit bittersweet but really nice to sit sort in of because I think because we haven't really been able to do any for the last yeah well for the last two years so it's been actually it's actually really nice that we get to do this sort of this one before I leave the, the collective.
5: Tilly could you tell us more about these writers residencies?
6: Yes um, so we, we started the library and the the way that it started maybe to give context was that um, we were in this reading group and there was a sort of all these books floating around in the community that had been a part of different community libraries and stuff um, that had closed down. And I think some people kind of within that scene were like, oh, it'd be great if there was a library. And I was at that time in a reading group with Annalise, Sid and Nick and Alex. And we and Annalise kind of came to us and asked if we would like to start a library because there was a space in this um, big warehouse in Footscray West that we could use for for, free, oh, for a smaller amount of rent um, and so we sort of spent a whole summer kind of cataloguing those books and organizing what was in there going through the collection and setting up a space um, and then I think from there it just for me at least it felt like a really solid base to kind of experiment with other things I think when it first began we kind of just thought it would just kind of not just be a library but we thought it would be mainly just a collection of books that people could access but then definitely for me, it felt like that kind of opened up a lot of space to do other programming and stuff. And out of that came the writer's residencies and I kind of, um, had met Chi maybe the year before, and I was just so honored that they wanted to do the residency. Um, we got actually lots of really incredible applications that first time around. Um, and yeah, they, so they were our first resident. And then from there we had Sarah and Manisha the next year, um, and then we had set up to have Panda and Gamete after that, but then COVID kind of was just this massive spanner in the works and it hasn't really happened. So I imagine then um, having these writers
5: come to IRL and do their residencies with you and now having them all together at the NGV for this poetry event as you're about to phase out of the library must be quite special for you.
6: Very, very special. Um, I mean, not everyone is. I think that's been the really lovely thing about IRL is that I wasn't super in like a poetry scene or anything like that before starting. And it's just been really great. Like, I mean, we've done the writers residencies, but I've also put on quite a few like poetry nights now. And um, often my focus is not really just on having new people, but I'll like get the same people kind of again and again, like Chi has read at like multiple poetry events. um, And so have other writers and residents. and bringing in new people. And I think that's built like this lovely community And to just have this like little event where, you know, a few of those sort of key writers can come and read together again is really lovely. I wish I could have everyone. It's kind of a shame that it's just five, but still great.
5: So you were saying that you're phasing out of the library and um, you're starting a new one. Could you tell us more about this new project of yours?
6: Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess for me, the library always felt like a really important project, but I think I've just been in it for a long time and I wanted to do something... That maybe allowed me to do some of more of the things that I always wanted to do with the library that felt hard like it's. it's such a big collection, and I think now it's great it's going to be kind of managed by the whole IRL the whole wider IRL collective like before for a long time it's just been me and Anneliese organizing it. Um, So now it's going to be a bigger group of people who are all organizing it it's kind of merging into the broader collective. Um, And I am really excited i'm starting a new i've started a new smaller collection um, called another world library, and my hope is that having a smaller collection that I can manage. Let's me kind of take it to different spots and um, do more kind of programming around it like less admin that's like just you know. The, the large, large amount of admin, which is um, looking after a large collection of books, I mean it's not that large compared to a lot of collections, but big for a Community organization, I think we had about three 3000 books. Um, and yeah another world is um, it's kind of a focused a very focused library on imagining worlds, I guess, against capitalism and for sort of environmentally and socially just futures with a focus on, you know, the, the importance and sort of the radical act of imagining community about ways of being, that feel better and feel sustainable.
5: Mm. I did also want to ask, do you have any advice, having been part of IRL for, for quite a few years now, any advice for people who um, want to start something um, around it, a shared interest or passion of theirs but but don't really know how to go about it?
6: Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I think just beginning, like I think, you know, build it and they will come. Like the, I think that was a really nice thing about doing just beginning, like just having sort of, I think there's a real power in just being like, I'm doing this thing and it is this thing. Like um, if that, that doesn't really make sense, but I think if you are confident and like, okay, I'm saying that this is a library, so it's going to be a library, people will be like, cool, it's a library. I'll come along to it. I think mm-hmm. we could have been really timid about it, but I think, just doing it and then lots of people showed a lot of interest which was like a very pleasant surprise but I think you can always do things and then see how people respond and if the response is good then you can build on that and then if it's not good then you can change it but I think doing things that um just do it yeah <laughs> no I think <laughs> that's, that's really great advice oh good I feel like maybe terrible advice but
5: <laughs> no I think sometimes people are too scared or timid like you said to to start things because perhaps in their minds it has to be big and successful straight away Um, and i think to a certain extent that's like perhaps thinking that comes from capitalism where it has to be like productive and and be successful financially or whatever and so people are too scared to start things Um, and so just doing it and and seeing what comes from it sounds like yeah really good advice
6: and that's absolutely what happened with IRL like I would never have I would never personally have been like, I'm going to start a library, but it it took someone else saying, let's do this thing. And then that gave me a lot of confidence to be like, oh, we've got this space and now we can do the writer's residencies and I can do events and like, I can start a publishing press and stuff like that. Like, I think when you just do something little, that can grow into lots of bigger things and sort of open up spaces that you didn't realise were there. So Tilly,
5: this Friday, the library will be at the NGV with two hours of poetry. Can you tell us who will be speaking at this event? and what can um, people expect from this poetry reading?
6: Yeah, so um, the NGV approached us to do a poetry event for the the Melbourne Art Book Fair. And I guess we wanted to be kind of critical about our engagement with the NGV. Like obviously it's not a completely unproblematic space as a lot of institutions are, um, but we thought that this was, you know, a a worthwhile opportunity for our writers and wanted to do it and but we kind of we didn't want to just have like a poetry event where people were just you know reading poetry we thought it was important that we were kind of critically engaging with the NGV um so the put a prompt that we gave our writers was like we would love you to choose a artwork across the space and you know it doesn't have to be critical but if you want it to be we like highly encourage that um and want to see how that can be generative like the different yeah the different writers sort of having this site or like a um yeah an artwork to then respond to and create work from but we also said of course like if you just want to read something that's fine as well that you already have maybe it can maybe the artwork can illustrate what you've read
5: and who will be reading at the event on friday
6: um so we have Minisha Anjali, um ainsley templeton chelsea hart sarah umar and stacy stokes and then of course chi um and yeah so a lot of writers at I've published or worked with before. Um, actually, I've published everyone apart from Stacey. And Stacey um, is a woman in prison at the moment who Annalise has built a relationship with um, through the letter writing to people in prison workshops. So I'm really excited for her work as well. She's Her friend is going to read her work, uh, her, her written piece for her in front of her work in The Queer Show. That was part
5: one of my interview with Tilly and G, speaking about Incendium Radical Library and their event at the NGV this coming Friday. We're now going to go to a track and this one was chosen by G. It's called Blue Light by Mazi Star.
7: There's a shirt that sails by my window. There's a shirt that sails on.
5: You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, that was Blue Light by Mazzy Starr. We're now going to jump back into the interview that I had with Tilly and G. In this final part of the interview, I speak with G Tran, writer, editor, artist, who will be reading at the NGV event this Friday. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Chi. Could you tell us more about yourself and how you first got involved with Incendium Radical Library?
8: I'm Chi. I'm a writer, artist and editor um, living in Melbourne or Nam. Um, I first met Tilly and maybe a few other people who were involved with the library in 2016. Uh, My last year of university. And then I think at the end of that year, I applied for the summer writer's residency to happen the following year. Um, I got accepted. And then so uh, I think it was January and February of 2017. um, I was the writer in residence at the library at its old, at its first location, which was Hot Shots and Footscray. Um, a big warehouse and yeah I did that residency and published my first chapbook with them and, yeah what was it like
5: having the support of IRL when you were just starting as a writer hmm.
8: well I feel like I had already done stuff in like I'd already been involved in community events and like writers festivals and published in small things in the past like before I did this IRL residency so while I was still in uni so it wasn't the first thing but it definitely helped me feel supported after like being out of university like being out of that structure and like not having any kind of it's kind of like once you finish like a creative course or something kind of feels like you're on your own and like you have to figure out all the steps by yourself, but the library, first of all, was really accommodating. Um, you know, even small things like they provided like lunch during my residency and like set me up with a mentor, um, and just the resources are amazing and kind of letting me lead my own residency and kind of do what I want, but also like being there to guide me and help, support me through workshops public workshops and readings that i wanted to do um so yeah and it definitely like set me on like a particular path in terms of like writing and um i guess texts that i became interested in and like influenced by like political texts yeah so
5: it sounds like it was a really formative experience for you
8: yes very formative
5: I know that um, on the Instagram account for IRL posting about the upcoming event, the NGV on Friday, it says that you are currently researching language as an active life form. Could you tell us more about this?
8: Yes. So I guess I'm interested in the possibilities of what language does after it's written, spoken, or read or otherwise shared. Um, I'm interested in the life and afterlife of language, as in what happens after language has been used. So what does this afterlife feel, sound, or look like? What is the extension of a word or a thought once it becomes public? So a lot of my writings influenced by how my own research, research of films, philosophy, math, physics, like live on inside me, and how I think about researching these concepts helps me to write about life.
5: That sounds really interesting. Um, from the perspective of a writer, editor, and artist, how important is it to have community spaces like IRL?
8: Mm, incredibly important. I think. I think it's very easy to take them for granted because they they don't kind of demand anything of you in return to like use their space or be a part of their community. So. I think maybe it was like Italy. We had conversations about how important libraries are, like maybe a year ago or two years ago, and how we kind of forget that it's like maybe, maybe not the only, but right now, like off the top of my head, it's the only one I can think of, like the only kind of public free space where you can go and engage with the materials inside and not, you don't have to spend money. So it's kind of like not just for like, practicing artists, but for anyone. um, I think these spaces are really important. Um, Yeah, and IRL in particular, I think their strength lies in the resources that they offer. Um, And I think the flexibility and like, in terms of like, you can rent out, not rent out, but you can kind of use their space um, for whatever you wanna do. Like if it's just with friends or with your collective or anything like that Um, and all the community events they throw and yeah, they do a lot of good work. Um, And then could you tell us a bit more about the work
5: that you'll be reading at the NGV this Friday?
8: Well, the brief for this particular reading was that we were all to respond to an artwork that's on display um, in NGV. And i chose a tiger pendant um like a crystal maybe jade i can't remember tiger pendant which i guess is fitting for this the zodiac of the lunar zodiac this year which is a water tiger um i have written something that kind of i guess in the same vein of most of my other writings i often use Something that I've written recently, and I use that as a prompt to write my next one so that it feels continuous in my practice. So, the piece I'll be reading is kind of a mix of some old stuff um, and some new kind of
5: essayistic poetry. Thank you so much, Tilly and G, for making the time to speak with me on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. All the best with the event on Friday.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And that was Fung speaking with Tilly Glaskadeen and Chi Tran about Incendium Radical Library and their upcoming poetry reading event at the NGV this Friday, 18th of March from 11am to 1pm. To find out more about the library and the event, please go to incendiumradicallibrary.com. Coming up now, we've got a song for you. Um, this is by Panya, who is a nam based r R&B singer whose Indian and Maori heritage feeds into her music, uh, which is deeply personal and draws from 2000s R&B, as well as taking inspiration from artists like Erika Badu, Farrell and Amy Winehouse. This is her song, Proof.
4: My heart, don't I show you the proof I give up the time, always vacant for you What's so scary about making that move Probably cause you can't be here by my side But I'm making that move Just show me the rose and let me grow You could say I'm spraying your heart is I We
3: Pania with her song Proof. Up next we have Daye Gang on the show this morning. Daye is a barrister and PhD student. Her research focuses on restorative justice programs and the experience of anti-rape advocates active during the women's liberation movement in Victoria in the 1970s and 1980s. Dae also has an international practice in North Korean human rights law and was the first Korean and first Australian to ever win the prestigious International Bar Association's Outstanding Young Lawyer for 2020. Welcome to the show, Dae. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, So let's just start out by uh, maybe you could just give us a little more of a background on yourself and your journey to practicing law here in Australia.
9: Yeah, um, I studied law at Monash Oh. A long time ago now, um, I was a classic case of, you know, someone who who nev- who didn't know any other lawyers or any other professionals. Um, and at law school, I felt like everybody knew things that I didn't, and everybody had their own sort of social networks. And I, I later probably realised that that was, a lot in large part thanks to their family and their, you know, and their professional backgrounds rather than any sort of innate deficiency I had. So I felt very lacking during law school and I all I could do was study very hard and work very hard. Um, and then after law school, I went to the family court and I decided that if that kind of work was what lawyers did, then I definitely didn't want to do that because family court is, is very emotional. and it's, it's all very sad and I didn't want to bring that home to my family. Um, so then I went and did some law enabled work, like a PhD or I'm still doing my PhD and I you know, that's how I sort of fell into North Korean human rights advocacy because that NGO they they wanted someone legally qualified and they also you know, w- would benefit from an English native speaker. So I've been doing that. Um, and then someone in the North Korean human rights space suggested that I could be an international prosecutor. And and it sort of connected with me that eventually if we see some kind of legal accountability in relation to North Korea, maybe my career will be at the stage where I can get involved in that as a lawyer and not just as a human rights advocate. Um, and so I went and sat the bar exam. I cried like a lot at the at the idea that someone like me become a barrister. People like me don't become barristers. Some are from a very poor and insecure background. Um, And so I, I went to the bar very doubting of myself, but now it's been in two and a half years, I've, you know, I've won an award, as you said. I'm really, really enjoying my practice in administrative, criminal, and commercial law. And so maybe I can stay in this role. And um, I love the Victorian Bar so much that I'm not sure whether I want to be an international prosecutor now. So I'm a classic example of championing working, people giving me opportunities. Um, my PhD came because my supervisor said, why don't you come and study with me? Um, and this the Bar role came because someone said, why don't you become an international prosecutor? And then I actually sat the bar exam because the judge that I was working for at the time, or um, a few years ago at the family court, we caught up and I was crying to him and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, if you go and sit the bar exam, I will help you however much I can. So now I try to be that kind of network to other minority law students that I didn't have during law school.
3: Wow, that is quite the journey. Um... You mentioned that, you know, you have specific expertise in crimes and human rights violations under international law and that you have an international practice in North Korean human rights and law. Can you tell us what drew you to this work specifically and what sort of challenges you have faced practicing international law? Yeah, um,
9: the North Korean human rights work is, is more of the human rights advocacy side. It's, it's less of the law, although now it's sort of getting more into the legal space. Um, So I work with an NGO called the Citizens' Alliance for North Korean Human Rights. Um, It's based in South Korea, and it was founded um, as a consequence of the um, the democratization of South Korea in 1988, when the South Korean Amnesty International branch that was formed to fight for democratization, they they said, we now have our freedoms, now we need to turn to our brethren in the north. Um, And so because that organization has been around for a very long time and it's very embedded in the community and very well trusted, Means that we're easily able to find interviewees for human rights reporting that um, that wouldn't necessarily trust their stories with people who just sort of coming from overseas. Um, not that they don't do very important work. Um, so some of the work that we've been doing over the part over this past uh, five or six years that I've been involved, we have reported to the committee. Um, on the elimination of all discrimination against women, so the CEDAW human rights framework, to which North Korea is a state party, surprisingly or not surprisingly. Um, And we've worked on two recent reports in 2020 where we revealed how the North Korean economy operates using coal as an example, coal mined in slavery conditions or forced labor conditions. Um, And the other one was about the human trafficking operation um, from Japan of ethnic Koreans into North Korea, about 80% of whom were actually ethnic South Koreans or Koreans from the South. So they were saying that um, it, this was an operation that was formed over, or uh, it was enacted over 25 years. So that's a whole generation. And it was about 93,000 um, ethnic Koreans deported, and they were largely disappeared, or they were relegated to the lower classes of ex- uh, exploitation and abuse. So, We've tried to turn our attention away from establishing that there are human rights abuses because I think that's now well established. We're turning away from showing that there are victims of these abuses and starting to look at accountability for the perpetrators um, who have caused these things to happen through their command structures. Um, And obviously, this is an issue that we're seeing play out in real time in relation to the Ukraine invasion. The difficulty, I guess, with North Korea is that because it's so closed, it's quite difficult to find evidence If you were sort of doing desktop research, like you might do about Mm -hmm. Russian oligarchs and freezing their house, uh, freezing their assets, Um, so it requires a little bit more digging. But I do have hope.
3: Yeah, that's um, that's absolutely incredible. You know, there's not not that I know of anyway. There's not much research and not much conversation around what's going on in North Korea. So um, that's super interesting. You also mentioned that your PhD research focuses on restorative justice. For listeners who may not know, can you explain what restorative justice is and why it's important for victims of sexual and family violence in particular?
9: Yeah, um, so re- restorative justice is quite a broad umbrella term. I don't think anybody inside or outside the field really um Wants to define it because the fourth year of making it less flexible and less beneficial to the um, to the participants. So the idea that parties to a crime or a conflict should have some way to leave that incident in their past, instead of it coming up again and again on a daily basis, or it sort of haunting them. Um, And the model that we've been using is the idea that a a victim and a perpetrator, for for want of better words, will get together in a room and it will be facilitated by someone who's trained um, um, to talk through the, the offending, the consequences of the offending, and what can be done to move on from that. And so um, is it hard to define this further? Yes, but only because it was always conceived as a voluntary process. Um to make sure that everybody gets what they need out of it. So common features are like pre-participation preparation. So um, there might be a victim specialist who works with the victim to just talk through what they want to get out of this, um, setting realistic expectations, making sure that they're you know psychologically ready for it. Um, and, and by the end of that process, the victim might just say, well, I don't really want to meet the perpetrator, but I do want to send them a letter. I want to communicate a message, but I don't want to look them in the face and that's acceptable, or that it should be acceptable in theory. Um, same with the perpetrator, You know, some of the common um, requirements are that the perpetrator must be prepared to accept responsibility for what they've done, so they need to be able to look the victim in the face and say, yes, that happened, and I did it. Um, and obviously, um, you know, to to protect all of the participants in the conference, the perpetrator needs to be at a level of insight, um, that they need to be able to talk about things in a way um, that doesn't re-traumatize really the victim. Um, the research reveals that a lot of victims of sexual and family violence and sort of gender violence or violence um, at the hands of people they know, they might want a form of accountability and justice but that form of accountability and justice does not necessarily mean dragging their perpetrators through the courts and putting them in jail and all of these um, very punitive um penal solutions so it's important to at least explore restorative justice as an option for some people understanding that other people will not want it at all Um, early research findings suggest that it is um, it does have a positive effect the empirical research is um, is limited for the amount of... Or compared to the amount of restorative justice programs there are in the world, whatever they then they might be named. Um, and it just so happens that Victoria is a leader in this sense globally because it's recently set up the Family Violence Restorative Justice Service. So now that's available for Victorians as an option, as a justice option, alongside taking your own action or getting workplace support or family support, um, getting intervention orders through the courts, and obviously, pursuing a complaint through the criminal justice system—it is one more toolkit. Uh, it is one more tool in the toolkit.
3: Yeah, and I mean, we've seen time and time again that the current kind of structures around justice aren't necessarily ideal, and as you mentioned, often just serve to re-traumatize the victim. Um, you know, and so it's kind of, sort of in the name of restorative justice. It sounds like where it's looking for a, a different way. To find justice for both the victim and the perpetrator in a way where people can kind of move forward and are not stuck in this punitive justice cycle.
9: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the idea of restoration is very interesting, isn't it? Because is it, is it turning the clock back to the point before the offending mm. or the behaviour happened? Not always, right? It, sometimes things happen and you, it's indelible. You can't erase it, but you can move on from it um, in a way that makes sense to you as a victim or even as the perpetrator. And um, I think that's what we're trying to identify. How is it safest? How is it going to be best um, um, to support
10: this process?
3: Absolutely, and I'll be very interested to know what comes of um, your work in this field and of your research as well. Um, another thing I was interested in your thoughts on was, you know, just being a woman of colour in the legal profession, both um, in Australia and internationally. Um, you know, you touched on this a little bit at the start, where it sounded a bit like you felt a bit of imposter syndrome, studying law, and, um, and, you know, you it took you a while to find your feet and feel the kind of confidence. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience, you know, just being a woman of color in this space?
9: Yeah. Um, um, the term imposter syndrome sort of internalized or personalizes a problem that does exist, right? It's sort of that you have an illness, it's all in your head, and it's, um, it's a problem that you should be dealing with. But I see... I see the place of women of colour in the legal profession and of other minorities, right, in the legal, legal profession um, as a systemic issue um, where the profession wants to fit you into particular shapes and particular personalities and mannerisms. And if you don't fit, then it's much, much harder to, um, to do your work and to get promoted and to get all of that good, good re- recognition. Mm. Um, so I've noticed that I sort of identified a strange twilight role where I'm both subject an object. So, like, as a subject, I'm a barrister. So I run my own case, I, I lead the litigation team and I'm the one who decides what happens and how a case will be run in court. Or I, you know, as a human rights advocate, I would um, research the agenda or I would, you know, research the people that I'm advocating to, I would figure out an agenda, I'd figure out, you know, what are the priorities to get um, get across um, at the meeting. Um, together with my boss but then i might go into court and like a court network person thinks i'm the victim in a family violence application that's actually happened to me or like i am um, we touched down in geneva and like the people at the airport were speaking french to my white but not french speaking boss and they were speaking english to me a french majoring <laughs> english-speaking person um and i just uh, p- people think that i am much less Um, much less qualified and much less professional than I am. Like, I am the object. I'm being acted upon. I'm, you know, someone who floats along the court system. Um, At the same time, I know that I'll never really be an object again because being a lawyer opens up both the sort of social and economic advantages of moving into a higher class, a higher socioeconomic class. Um, it, It opens doors. It gives you money to work with. But I'm also an object in that, like, in the workplace and especially at the bar and the the solicitors who, who brief about these sort of diversion and inclusion policies that they are starting to institute, they get very confused when the focus moves away from the very convenient, like middle class, yeah. able yeah. woman type, type, not that they aren't very important, right? Um, um, as soon as it comes to me, people sort of, it's like, are you Asian or are you a woman? What what are you? Are you anything else? I can't be anything else. So what I've observed is that, like, it's usually the well-off women of colour, the, the sort of straightforward cases, so to speak, who can perform class, who can perform whiteness, who then end up in the legal profession and mm-hmm. doing much better. So I think there's like a, a very broad, richer conversation, not just about women of colour, not just about representation, but about equity that sort of gets covered up by these other corporatized ideas.
3: Absolutely. I, I, I really agree about the intersections of class as well here, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. often missing from the conversation. And at the moment, you know, you we've, we're seeing um, permanent white feminists kind of getting center stage in the news at the moment, which is great in lots of ways. I mean, Grace mm-hmm. Tame is amazing and Brittany mm-hmm. Higgins and mm-hmm. everyone yeah. else. But um, yeah, there's definitely a conversation to be had around the women who are not being represented in that space, um, and the intersectionalities of, of class, of you know, you've, the different Asian backgrounds you may come from, or yes. African backgrounds, or Absolutely. Aboriginal backgrounds that are, that are definitely missing from the stage and from the conversation.
9: Yeah, I think there are so many conversations going around. I just think that they're not given the spotlight because it's, you know, it would be career suicide and it would be it would be taking a big, big risk. So, you know, now that I have the independence of, you know, of working for myself and people seem to like me and I seem to win awards and so on and so forth, I feel like it's my responsibility to at least carry a little bit of that conversation.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, your research and your work is definitely taking us in that direction. So I'm really excited to see what you go on to do um, and what your research kind of brings forward. Um, unfortunately, this is all we have time for this morning, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us, Daye. It's been very illuminating.
9: Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day.
3: You too. Thank you. Bye. That was Daye Gang, who is a barrister and researcher based here in Nam, and, um, We will link to her bio and some of her work in our show notes later today if you wanted to know more.
1: Coming up now, um, we have an interview with Claire Wright. Uh, last week, the Victorian government announced that artists and projects um, will share in a $1 million Victorian women's public art program. Of 590 statues across Melbourne, only nine currently depict real women, with the program designed to address the underrepresentation of women in public art. A Monument of One's Own, which is a campaign in conjunction with the Victorian Trades Hall Council, received funding from Women's Public Art Program to honour Zealous dePrano, De the legendary Equal Pay campaigner. So joining us now is Dr. Claire Wright, who is the Professor of History at La Trobe University and co-convener of a monument of one's own. Welcome to the show, Claire. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So this is such a fascinating campaign to me. Um, We've had a lot of discussion over the last few years about the proliferation of not just statues of men, but men who are symbols of objective harm, uh, not just in Australia but all over the world. And one of the defences I've always seen is that we need to have memorials of history and so that's why they're there. And yet somehow women who have materially contributed to um, Australian history don't get that sort of birth. And so um, is this what you're trying to change?
11: Yeah, well, a couple of years ago, uh, a few of us got together recognising that there was a demonstrable uh, gap between the uh, number of statues in Australia that depict men, full-bodied statues of actual historic men who could be named, who you can uh, know through, through research or through mythology what they actually did, and statues of women. Um, there are statues that depict the female form that essentially are allegorical, that represent an idea or a virtue such as justice or liberty, obviously the famous one being the Statue of Liberty, and... Um, or they, these statues are very often naked. Um, they um, generally represent the female form as, um, in a very um, hyper-feminised way with breasts exposed. And But there are very, very few statues of actual real-named historic women. So we wanted to put some numbers around that, uh, believing that the, in the old adage that what gets measured gets managed. And um, also to put pressure on governments to say, "Hey, you know, this isn't good enough." And so we started a monument of one's own. My co convener is the journalist Christina Zavica. Uh, Julia Gillard is our patron. We have a fantastic board of, uh, adv- of a board, um, including. Megan, Professor Megan Davis and uh, Richard Dennis and Professor Kim Rubenstein, all people who have who are really committed to the idea um, that, uh, and this is basically the overall term, who believe in the in the idea of commemorative justice. So the idea that who we remember and how we remember them is important. It matters. And that we have a massive, massive gap uh, in our gendered commemorative program here in Australia.
1: Yeah, um, one of the uh, things that I was reading about um, with your campaign, and just with um, you know this current um, you know a win to get a statue for Zelda, is that so many like the, of the few statues that actually even exist of women, as you were saying earlier, like, you know, they're either metaphors or they're just completely fictional. Um, and it's just so important to have those kind of um, the, the just commemorating women who have actually contributed like Zelda. Um, I didn't know very much about her until a few years ago and just, you know, reading her book. And it was just such a shock to me that, you know, someone like this isn't constantly coming up in History textbooks, or Mm -hmm. let alone like you know, front and center as a statue.
11: Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, um, there are there there are many prongs to this. There are many ways in which patriarchy erases women's activities and women's contribution to history-making. And uh, there are theories as to why patriarchy needs to do that. Uh, One of them is that if you actually demonstrate and show and remember and in both history books and education and concrete forms like statues. The fact that women have been powerful, that they've been organised, that they have um, worked individually and collectively to change the the conditions um, under which they live, uh, to question and challenge structures and systems of power, um, that women have gotten angry, that they've gotten organised. If you remember these things, well, you know, it's it's powder in the in the keg of women today um, to continue that process of change making and and history making, and so there is a constant um, process of of erasure of erasure and making those um, activities of previous women of um, historic women uh, invisible, um, diminishing them in in some way, often. Um, Often uh, trivialising uh, and and just through various ideological ways, saying you know women have only existed on the home front or you know and and doing women's work, and then as we well know, um, women's work is in itself devalued and demeaned, and we still see that clearly um, with the fact that we still have um, an almost 14% gender pay gap and that's because most of the professions that women are in um, are very low-paying ones because the work that they do is devalued. But it also erases the ways in in which women haven't always existed in the... you know, safe um, form and box that patriarchy would like to put them in, but that they have been rule breakers and they have been boundary pushers and they have changed the nature um, of uh, of politics, that they've been politically active, they've contributed to nation building, they've contributed to wars, they've contributed to making peace after wars. And um, and all of the, these ways in which you might see that women um, have performed and, and participated in in what we might call more um, uh, prof- professions or or spheres of activity that are generally gendered male, the fact that women participate in those also challenges men's prerogative to power the male prerogative to power so there, there are many ways in, in which this operates um, and you know we've got to chip away at all of them and one of the ways in which a monument of it, one's own is trying to address this is, is actually to make it a, a visible um, contribution to resetting um, that, that false picture of the past and by doing it um, through a form that is, as you recognised early on in your piece, it's generally considered um, to be, you know, now statue-making is quite outdated, particularly figurative statue-making, because it is part of the colonial project. Um, you know, those men who are up on plinths all over our our cities and, and in our regional areas all over Australia are generally 19th-century men who were part of the colonial project, um, of erasing another form of, of history and humanity. So it, it's, statue making is not popular with everybody, but one thing that we do know about it is that when people see somebody up there on a plinth, they don't necessarily know who that person was or what they did, but they know they were important. They know they were significant. Uh, we, we, um, the value system of um, of statue making is absolutely inherent in the way that we read our cities. And at the moment, the only way in which we can read our cities is as places in which men have a place, which men belong and which men dominate.
1: That's so um, – it's such a, a great analysis of why, like, you know, that kind of – um, history preservation is important too. Uh, you made such an important point about just like the way in which people view statues as part of the colonial project. Um you know, I think that is exclusively been the discussion over the last few years. You know, there's been a lot of um, discussion as to why there are so many statues, for example, of Captain Cook, um, you know, for examples of so much hurt uh, in Australia. Um, and to have, I think, maybe to change the perspective of what a statue means and what it uh, represents to people and what they what they acknowledge um, as a result. So, um Let's talk about this most recent achievement. Um, uh, the the uh, Monument of One's Own is won now through the um, Victorian Women's Public Art Program.
11: So this is a really exciting development. Um, one of the things that the Monument of One's Own has been doing is to be collecting figures um, and to be putting pressure on governments all over Australia to recognise the fact that there is this, this huge gap and we, we identify it as being part of the respect gap um, as part of the conversation about respect that we're having all over the nation, um, in in relation to the way that um, that women and, and gender um, and is in generally, um, we're obviously having problems all the way through to our national parliament um, in terms of a lack of respect. And so the Victorian um, government recently announced the grants um, to start to address some of the problems that the Monument One Zone has identified um, in terms of the fact that in, in Melbourne there are 580 statues and only nine of them are of women, um, Two of those are saints, and one is Queen Victoria. And there's a pre- predominance of, of female sports people within that. Um, there's only one statue of an Indigenous woman, and she's pictured. That's Lady Gladys Nichols. She's uh, pictured, depicted with her husband, um, Pastor Doug Nichols. And um, and so they announced this program, a million dollars uh, in this first round for statues um, or other works of art that commemorate real historic women uh, and who are made by female artists, um, women or, um, or um, gender-diverse artists. And this is an incredibly important development because one of the reasons why you get... 110 statues of Captain Cook in Australia, which is the current number, is because money is put towards it. And so let's never forget where the statues come from, is they come from fundraising, either private fundraising um, or they come from public fundraising. And uh, just to stick with Captain Cook for a moment before I go to a much more interesting person, Melda Um it's a couple of years ago Scott Morrison announced a 50 million dollars for to to redo the statue of cook at Kurnell the place where um where cook made landfall which happens to be in the electorate of cook which happens to be Scott Morrison's own electorate 50 million dollars <laughs> For uh, to remodel and refashion a statue that is already there, um, when we have 110 statues, so just imagine what you can do with 50 million dollars in terms of addressing that respect, respect gap and um, that uh, the the fact that Australia has less than four percent of statues of women. It's
1: just 50 uh, times what's the, you know the grant for this program just for one statue. <laughs> Exactly.
11: So, so, you know, the, the, we have to realize that there is money there. Um, there, There is money to be found um, it, presently in Canberra. There are no statues of women in our federal national capital. There are no statues of women, full-bodied statues of women. There's a couple of busts, um, but that's it. Um, The federal government has just announced that there will be statues of Dorothy Changi and Eden Eden Lyons. The first two women elected to parliament over 80 years ago uh, are going to be memorialised. But there have been two statues that have recently, three actually, that in the last three years that have been put up in Canberra. One of John Gorton, one of Andrew Inglis-Clark and... um, uh, one of that National Party dude whose name I've just forgotten. There's even a statue of John Gordon's even depicted with his dog. So it's not like there isn't money there, but a lot of that comes from private funding and corporate funding. So this is why what the Victorian government has done through the Office of Women and Minister Gabrielle Williams is so incredibly important because it actually sets a precedent for government saying this is a problem and it's a problem that we're prepared to address not just with hand-wringing and words, but by putting money there. So a monument of one's own uh, teamed up with Trades Hall Council and we put in an application to build a statue of Zelda Di Prano. So De- Zelda De Prano, for people who are unaware of what she did, and uh, there will be a lot of them out there because of what I said before about patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zelda Di Prano was a woman who was... Um, a uh, Russian immigrant to uh, Australia, she left school at 14, Um, she worked in um, a number of of menial and industrial jobs, she was uh, working um, in the meat industry when there was a pay case that was put um, forward, Uh, she went to the, it was an equal pay case. she went forward, uh, she sat in the courtroom, she watched the case be prosecuted all by men for a board of people who were making the decision, who were all men. There were women who were the meat workers who they were talking about, who were sitting in the audience, but not one of them got to speak um, on her defence or about her experience in any way. Bob Hawke actually prosecuted the, the uh, case on behalf of the unions. Um and uh, and the case didn't get up. And Zelda was appalled at having been treated. She said she was felt like she was treated like they were meat, like they were cattle, just being talked about. Um, and decided that something needed to be done. So she organised a, basically a one-woman protest. She chained herself to the front doors of the Commonwealth Building. Um, where these important decisions were made, using an old suffragette tactic uh, of chaining yourself to something um, and um, and then making the authorities come to you and having to remove you from there. And she made sure that there were television cameras there, that there were newspaper reporters there. She did it on her lunch hour and... Um, uh, When I interviewed her a few years ago, unfortunately Zelda passed a couple of years ago, but I interviewed her about five years ago about this, and she told me that she made sure that she didn't have anything to drink that morning because she was afraid that she didn't know how long she'd be chained up, and she was afraid she'd need to go to the toilet. And so she um, was eventually removed by the police, and they said, what do you think one woman doing... Something is going to achieve. This is ridiculous. And she said, "Well, today it's one woman. Tomorrow it will be two. The next day it will be three, and so on. And so it will go." Um, so she had a kind of build it and they will come mentality, and they did. And essentially, this action, which was captured, and you can see the photograph if you Google Zelda DeFrano, um, you'll, you'll see you have the photograph of her chain to the front of the Commonwealth Building um, was. Is, is an iconic image now um, at the start of the women, the, the second wave women's movement. Zelda went on with um, her compatriots to start the Women's uh, Liberation Front in, um, in Melbourne, um, which joined Women's Liberation Front at the starting up in Sydney, and Adelaide, and that's the start of second wave feminism and everything that we basically know about the 70s women's movement. So um, we felt that Zelda was an incredibly important person to remember, um, partly because of the courage of of her action, partly because that photo has become so iconic, um, but partly because, um, and mostly because, the issue that she fought for, which is um, pay equity, is still the we know through all the research that's been done subsequently is the single most important factor for women's economic security and their safety and we know also now how many other parts of women's safety and well-being including domestic violence um, is predicated on them having economic security and economic independence and we still have an almost fourteen percent pay gap. So this is to remember the work that Zelda did for all women, um, or the issue that she stood for is one that affects all women and the fact that we're not there yet. So we're hoping that this statue is a a permanent reminder, both of her courage, but of the fact that we have to act collectively in unity to achieve uh, pay equity and wage justice um, for all women. And, uh, and that we need to basically go back to the barricades. This is unfinished business, and we're hoping that this statue can form the, um, a, a knowledge of the past, but also inspiration for women's future actions.
1: Yeah, it's so amazing to hear her history. Um, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Claire, for speaking to us today about Zelda and about um, the campaign. Uh, I'm looking forward to um, getting in touch with you um, once um, the statue gets built and also um, for future projects as well that A Monument of One's Own uh, does too. Thank you so much. It's a great
11: pleasure. If people want to see the other statues that were funded, um, there are six projects that have been funded. uh, They can go... um Just Google it and you'll come up and you'll see that there are other incredible women, including Indigenous women, who are being recognised all over Victoria. And all the statues have to be unveiled by November. So it's going to be a big year.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. See you. Bye. And that was Claire Wright uh, from uh, uh, La Trobe University, the Professor of History, uh, talking about a monument of one's own.
0: We're going to go straight into a conversation now that uh, occurred – it would be – Over a week ago on the 26th of February, just after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Annie from Solidarity Breakfast interviewed Dr. Helen Caldicott on her views on Ukraine. Dr. Caldicott is an Australian physician, author and anti-nuclear advocate. She founded several associations dedicated to opposing the use of nuclear power, depleted uranium munitions, nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons proliferation and military action in general
12: and we've got uh, Dr. Helen Caldicott on the line. Hello, Helen, how are you?
10: I'm very well, thank you.
12: Yeah, now, uh, of course, all the mainstream media is uh, from a uh, dead stop, completely uh, full of uh, Ukraine-NATO crisis potential. Third, now it's moved to third, uh, World War Three. Uh, can you tell me what are the uh, things that people should really be concerned about?
10: Yes. yes there are several things first of all uh putin made uh some very sane objectives he wanted ukraine not to join nato and he wanted all the nato countries uh had joined nato since the end of the cold war he wanted america to remove its missiles pointing into russia James Baker, former Secretary of State, promised Gorbachev when the Cold War ended that NATO would not move one inch to the east like Lithuania um, and all the other little countries that have been released by the Soviet Union. However, that's not what happened. America violated its promise. And many, many of these countries... Um, joined NATO and spent about a billion dollars um, buying weapons from America's military-industrial complex. And so uh, Putin is aggrieved, and justifiably so, by being very upset by this. It's like uh, Russia moving into Canada and setting up missiles all along the Canadian border with America. Uh, And I don't think Americans understand the significance of this. Um, And what happened in the Ukraine, there was a a revolution led by America uh, in the Maiden Square Massacre, uh, and the democratically elected president of Ukraine uh, fled to Russia. uh, And a, a, a man who was... Formerly a comedian, Zelensky was put in as the new president. Now there are a lot of Nazis uh, in the Ukraine, and they ha- they have been since the Second World War. And they and but on the east of the Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, those all of the, those parts of the country are very Russian speaking. They didn't want to join the new Ukraine. Uh, there was pressure for the Ukraine to join the EU, um, and in that case, then the Russian-speaking people feared they would lose free health care, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, they, so what happened was that from Kiev, uh, Zelensky et al. sent in troops to shoot and kill and disturb the people in Donetsk and Luhansk. And that's what Putin has been upset about. Now, what worries me is that Putin gave a speech recently and he didn't sound terribly sane, going back 100 years, talking about Lenin, etc., etc. And he has now opened fire in the Ukraine, which is very disturbing when you watch women and children being terrified and buildings exploding, etc. I thought he was just going to take over Donetsk and Luhansk, but he hasn't. And the fear is, not just with me, but with people who know that there could be a nuclear war. Russia and America have the greatest number of nuclear weapons in the world, each of them about 5,000 many of them on hair-trigger alert. In other words, if America thinks it sees missiles coming from Russia, um, it has a three-minute decision time whether or not to launch its missiles. And the missiles only take 30 minutes to go from where to go bilaterally, as so a nuclear war in that sense would be over in about an hour, uh, killing billions of people and inducing over time nuclear winter which is when, as the cities burn with oil and carbon and, and the like, huge amounts of toxic black radioactive smoke are injected into the stratosphere, covering the Earth with a cloud so thick it blocks out the sun for up to 10 years, inducing a very severe winter and crops die and we would all die in the, in the cold and the dark. So that's the basis of the fear of... Uh, of those who really understand the political situation, P- Biden, I've, I fear, is a, yeah. so. An what, you, what you're command? saying is
12: that's the most extreme outcome. Uh, it, you've you've painted a picture of uh, internal conflicts in uh, Ukraine. So there are uh, local internal players who have got agendas. But America has got form in regards of uh, using other states as cat's paws. Uh, So, for example, if you look at uh, what's happening in Yemen, where you've got the uh, Arab Emirates at the US behest completely violating that country, destroying and killing uh, for a particular political and economic outcome, one assumes because Yemen was never a threat, so uh the um the the desire of america uh, and europe who are beholden to europe uh, uh, Russian supplies of fuel um uh you know there's something Uh, very uh, disturbing about uh, using uh, those issues as a way of diverting people's attention from much more serious issues which are the environment.
10: That's true and uh, much of this is led by the military industrial uh, organisation in America, Lockheed Martin, um, BAE um, and many others. In fact at the moment, their shares are going through the roof.
12: Well, surprise, surprise. Um,
10: and America's got 800 military bases in 80 countries. So <laughs> it's it's a, a very dangerous country which calls itself, uh, that it's got American exceptionalism. Yeah, they're exceptional at killing people. And it's not the Department of Defense per se. It's the Department of War, but more, it's the Department of Murder and Killing, because that They've killed over a million people since 9/11 um, in, you know, in Iraq, etc. It's just obscene. Um, and over half the discretionary budget in America goes to these extraordinarily lethal weapons. What we should be doing at this point in time on the planet's surface is joining together, making friends, working cooperatively to stop global warming and stop stop the destruction of the environment um, I wish but the problem is you know that most governments are run by men uh, who are fueled by their testosterone and you know 51 percent of the population is women and we should stand up and and actually take over but
12: um, there is calls for a, a, a need for diplomacy. Do you think that diplomacy has any chance?
10: Yeah, well, if America went now to Putin and said, look, stop bombing, we're not going to allow the Ukraine to join NATO, we are going to remove all those missiles we've placed along your border and do what he required. It's interesting, as I read yesterday that uh, Yeltsin asked Clinton, could Russia be part of NATO? And they said, no, Russia's too big. Uh,
12: so no. wanting... <laughs> I mean, but the reason for why they've got NATO is to create the um, them and us scenario between yeah, them and right. Russia,
10: right? And, yeah, and the and uh, new Cold War. So America really is uh, quite obscene and thinks it's the boss of the world. And it's very dangerous because it's all based on weapons build-up and uh, filling the coffers of these huge, huge military corporations making weapons to blow up the world.
0: That was just a snippet from a conversation on Solidarity Breakfast with Dr. Helen Caldicott. Uh, That brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Please listen back if you missed any of the fabulous interviews we had at the beginning uh, on our website, on the 3CR webpage. And as always, coming up next is Accent of Women. Keep it locked to 3CR.